This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and To Honey. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network at Roberta's on a particularly loud and raucous evening. Today, we're going to be talking all about the food supply chain. In other words, the series of linked activities that occur while moving food from producers to consumers, and the incredibly complex logistics involved in doing so. To talk all about this, I'm joined on the line by Robin Metcalf, a food historian and futurist and author of the newly published book, Food Routes, Growing Bananas in Iceland and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So (laughs) glad I can be here. Um, So quick question. What is a food futurist? You know, that's a great question because I'm just discovering what it is myself. (laughs) I've uh, actually been, my, my background academically is as a historian, so you would think I would really be talking mostly about 19th century technology. But I find that history is a great context for looking forward, and I hadn't really begun to appreciate that until recently, when you begin to hear all the things that are unfolding in front of us in terms of shaping a, a new food system you realize that it's really part of a long continuum of innovation and change. So, um, really, I just think it's someone who's looking forward, um, and but also in this case, in my case at least, using uh, a look backward as a context. What um, made you decide to want to write a book about the food supply chain? As sexy as supply chain <laughs> logistics is, I mean, I think, but like, what made you want to, yeah. you know, hone in on this the topic? The main goal, yeah, of this is to make uh, um, logistics um, alluring, right? I mean, this is, I think, part of our our joint goal here is to make people want to dig into uh, supply chain logistics. But the way I got interested in this was um, in the early 1990s, I decided to start a farm in Maine, actually where I am now, because we continue the summer here, but we mm-hmm. decided at one point in time to spend a whole year here wow. farming heritage breeds. And they weren't called heritage at that moment. They were called rare breeds. And now they've got this extra panache of being called heritage breeds. <laughs> and Marketing. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they succeeded in sexy, I guess. So we should think about that. Um, so the... The, the project was to raise these 
the number of breeds uh, of animals in the breeds, and then to get them to market so that farmers would want to raise more of these endangered, rare heritage uh, breeds. So in doing that, um, we, we focused on this one breed of, of heritage sheep, created this land product, and then began to market it up and down uh, the New England coast. And what was interesting to me was that, um, you know, the, in particular, there was one very perfect um, restaurant about three miles away. Um, and who would be the ideal place for you know, to buy this locally raised uh, conservation, sustainable um, um, oriented uh, product? And when I pitched the the uh, owner there about this our lamb, um, I was told that they prefer to buy it from New Zealand, which at the moment. I just was incredulous, sort of like, well, how could that possibly be? Yeah. So it was really the experience on the farm and those sorts of encounters that got me to, to be, um, you know, to follow up from the incredulous moment to what that was saying, how did this work? What were the dynamics of getting food from farm to table that, that were um, unclear to me? What, how did I, what did I need to get, what did I say know about that? Right. Make that work. So how is the food supply chain different from, from other industries? Because there seem to be, like, glaring differences. Well, the first thing is that it's a perishable commodity, right? I mean, most of it is. The things that we really, are right now, want to eat more of the fresh fruit milk, produce, um, proteins, all of these things, basically, require careful handling and if anything fails along the way in that regard, um, which is different, this is different than, say, toasters and TVs. If anything fails along that food supply chain of perishables, it becomes waste. It cannot be, you know, resold easily, legally yeah. in any case. So basically from the moment food is taken from the soil, it begins to die all the way to your plate. And the, the game here is to make that a shorter time period and lessen it, you know, extend the life all along the way. Which is, you know, easier said than done. I And I have to say, like, <laughs> right, um, one of the things, this book, like, really particularly resonated with me for a couple of reasons, but, um, you know, in addition to my work on the podcast, I also work at Our Harvest, which is a direct-to-consumer online farmer's market and grocery delivery service. So we, and we essentially self-distribute. So like, safe to say we're in the logistics business and safe to say that you 100% captured like in one place, the enormous complexities and challenges entailed of this kind of work, which was also super validating for me just to be like, look, look at how hard it is. <laughs> this is above and beyond any other kind of, I feel like, um, endeavor. But, um, so right. very, very well. Well, just done. imagine you're trying to optimize a bunch of variables that are changing all the time. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, it's, it would be one thing if you could know that, um, people were going to produce the same amount all the time under the same conditions. It would cost everybody the same amount of money and the truck would show up with just the right amount of space and all of your demands remain constant. I mean, it's crazy when you think about yeah. how efficient our food supply chain is now. 
right. in spite of a, a dynamic changing environment. One has become even more dynamic now because of things like climate change and terror yeah. and trade wars. I mean, oh, trade add wars. a few layers of that and then... Everything else. Yeah. Everybody has to figure it out. Right. Um, one thing, Robin, you're you're kind of going in and out a little bit. Are you? Do you have good service where you are, or not the best? I'm on the, a remote part of Maine, okay. on the coast. So <laughs> I will try to at least speak more clearly. But no, okay. Um, All right. Sorry no, about that. No, no, no problem. Um, um, okay. So I want to, you know, you in this book lay out four what you call ingredients that are entailed in getting food to our plate. Um, which are reliability, trust, adaptability, and technology. And I want to dive into what each of those, you know, are in in a minute. But first I want to kind of um, talk about the current assumptions that you say we have grown accustomed to when talking about um, the food system and kind of which one is right now, which of of those two in each cases are kind of thought to be better. Um, So can you just tell us what those two assumptions are? Uh, like, I mean, you talk um, about, like, you know, big food versus small farms. Oh, right. Yeah, all the assumptions, really, um, by many who are in the food conversation, is that you cannot be safe and trustworthy if you're big. Right. And that if you are a small farmer, you are ethical, um, a good scout, and your food is safe. So we're, we're in this world of binary conversations. Yeah. Which is really inhibiting our progress right now. So those assumptions, I think, are limiting our ability to innovate in really useful ways. And you're, so stamps are eroding. You're finding some really odd bedfellows um, coming up. You know, people who would be anti-science are now looking at things that are very technical, being ethical. Um, you have people who have been against food processing and yet find meat fabricated in a lab okay yeah so you know we've gone from this really binary system of conversation to one where it's almost musical chairs it's also what almost like musical chairs you know people changing crossing boundaries under certain conditions so um it's it's a fascinating sort of uprooting mm-hmm. of some of those assumptions um well what are some of the what, what are some of the merits, let's say, of big? And I can't believe I'm. Well, you know, I actually would totally be asking this question normally. But what, like, yeah, what are the merits of, of big food? <laughs> the merits of big food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we this. I mean, <laughs> so I don't really hit on this a lot. Why that question so hard? I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, because I think you know, bigness um, has for a long time, you know, as the industrial revolution has um, you know unfolded, um, there's certainly plenty of evidence. Um, of big companies doing very bad things. And at scale, that gets to be really bad. Really bad. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So scale has its downside, meaning a false move affects a lot of people. But I think that's more by, you know, the values at the top, um, the lack of transparency. And some of these things are changing right now in our culture. Mm-hmm. Transparency is being demanded by the marketplace. Yeah. So, you know, so even, you know, large companies, Walmart is, is, is entering the blockchain and transparent technology arenas um, at, you know, rapidly 
because they understand that they really are going to have to to answer to consumers. It's really the market that's pushing the big companies to uh, become more mindful, to start thinking about sustainable values. Shareholders are asking that. So I think there's some reform coming by pressure from the bottom so that uh, it doesn't change the fact that if somebody does something bad at scale, that has vast repercussions. But one of the benefits, going back to your question, Mm -hmm. is that by doing anything at scale, you can bring the cost down. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can make a good thing more accessible. And I think that's something that we miss sometimes when we think about some of the things happening, um, you know, on a small scale, that it it has to end there, that it is, in some case, de facto virtuous. Um, I think we would like to see a world where a lot of people got healthy food at a price they can afford. Right. So the benefits are, you know, um, like an impact, the ability to have a much bigger impact and also re, you know, reach more people, basically, at a price point right. that is, you know, right. is possible. So the other thing that you talk about in terms of the two, the other kind of big assumption and, and um, right now are the global, you know, global supply chain versus local food. And, you know, this was... Um, this is also incredibly interesting to me because right now we're in a world of like sound bites. Like what's good is local food and organic food. People are like, I buy local and I eat organic. And maybe they don't really understand what, you know, the, what that really means in the truest sense. And I think you do a great job of laying out like questioning, right. Is, is local better in every single instance? Right. Well, I think local, I would probably would all agree, is is um, a good thing from an economic development standpoint. Absolutely. In other words, you know, you want you really want to have your local community and your region, and, you know, and your state have an economy that's close by. The people there all have work that's um, growing and thriving. So, from that standpoint, there's certainly a lot uh, to be said about the merits of having a local economy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you're trying to feed people and there are um, situations where if you want a diverse diet, you really need to go to places that produce something. Um, that's where specialization comes in play, um, you know, at a good price and long distance. And so um, I think you want to allow the economy to, or the businesses to find those ingredients and the consumers define the ingredients they need for a nice rounded diet, so you don't have to go without, you know, bananas. Right. I mean, this all might change if you could, you know, all grow, you know, the whole movement of indoor ag. You know, if you could build a whole network of indoor growing systems around a city where you can have microclimates. I mean, that would be great. But on the other hand, you have to consider the ramifications of economies that are far away who rely on, say, banana production for their livelihood and what it means when you take that away. So I think that there's been a network of consequences there to think about when you insist on buying locally for that reason. I mean, the question that I think uh, that comes into my mind is, like, are we meant to have everything all of the time, right? Are we, should, we, should we have access to bananas, like, in the, in the Northeast? Um, they, we didn't used to, and we were fine, arguably, right? Um, <laughs> well, wait I, a minute. I don't know. I also don't like bananas, fine? so I, I, maybe that's, this is totally me. I'm like, oh, God, we do not need bananas here. But um, I think there are a lot of people who disagree with me. <laughs> no, 
No, but yeah. you know, well, like, I think the other thing is, well, it, maybe it's just the f- fact that everybody there should be choice. You know, I think that's that option of having choice, so that if you want to have a banana, it is available to you at a reasonable cost. And if you don't, then you then know, you so do, maybe there's an economy there. You know, that that works all of that out. And I'm not a nutritionist, but it would be interesting to talk to a nutritionist about when you define a local, say, food landscape around what grows there, are all the nutrients that are needed available locally yeah. at a good price? Or, or, now, yeah. That would be a, you know, a nutritional sort of question yeah. to pursue. And you, I mean, you do say that, you know, it, it's very different. Like, what it, local is what, like, officially by the... Is there official? I thought there was no official federal standard. I thought it was just, no. <laughs> like, still... Coming. Well, it's also, it's geographically, designed, you know, defined what's local in Texas is several hundred miles away, what's local in New England might be 10 miles away, you know, so it's very um, conceptual, uh, you know, it's, it can be constructed by just landscape, it also can be constructed by, you know, if something is local, does that mean every single thing in it is local? I mean, what if you require water brought from the next state over? Uh, I mean, you know, there's, or, you know, what is it? Is it a percentage deal? Does it have to be 100%? So I think there's just so many um, troublesome, nitpicky parts of the of the definition right. that um, at least people should just acknowledge that and understand that. Yeah. And um, whatever you do, don't pester your server about that because <laughs> they will... <laughs> they will probably walk out. Are you are you uh, referring to an episode of a popular TV show? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the wonderful Portlandia chicken one, which is I think is a wonderful thing to see us all in that mirror. How many of us have been that person, right? Well, probably a lot of people listening to the show right now. <laughs> um, which you know, I mean, I think it's like, and I think that the other hand, it's like it's really you really want to encourage the curiosity behind where your food comes from, and to you know want to make very choiceful decisions, right? I mean, and your book is filled with art, like arguments, if you will, on both sides of every single issue, which is why I, you know, it, it offers perspectives um, on every issue, which I really, which is just a different sort of framework for thinking, which is one of the things that I loved so much about it. But, you know, especially in the local, you're right. Like you think about local, like, what does that mean? Does it mean like where the great, like in, the feed inputs come from? Think about how much food, you know, or like, like if you, I don't know, raising a cow, for instance, where does all the grain come from and then where is it processed? And then was it grown and processed and then packaged in like different states? And it just, it like goes on and on and on in a way that. Right. right. I think you just lose your, yeah, lose your grip somewhere along that line. (laughs) Um, Yes, certainly. So what about from an environmental standpoint, when we think about local versus, um, you know, something coming from, like, I'm in New York, so something coming from the east end of Long Island versus something coming from New Zealand in terms of land. Right. Well, you know, funny thing, to circle back to that story of that, that restaurant, uh, one of the uh, things I eventually learned was that New Zealand makes, um, for that restaurant, at uh, just the right price point, really good, you know how to do really good lamb that is uniform so they can price it right at the at the restaurant. And they do it and they can get it there at a very um, reasonably low cost carbon wise. And the reason for that is that there was very there is a very good supply chain at scale 
so that, you know, per calorie, you're paying less to get that lamb to this place in Maine than you are, say, loading up a truck and driving it 500 miles. So this is what people, I think, miss about bigness, is that the supply chain at scale is really efficient. And the more we can make use of existing supply chains, that infrastructure that's already there, instead of creating a multitude of them, the better off we'll be just from an environmental standpoint. I think one case in point might be all the home delivery of food that we're seeing right now. Okay. I mean, we have a veritable traffic jam, you know, going on up our driveways, right? I mean, how many food delivery services can we choose from? I mean, choice is great, but not if they're each driving a car to bring a single item to somebody. So at some point in time, um, I would imagine that there would be some way of either jumping on an existing supply chain infrastructure to get your item there from point A to B, or regionalizing it or aggregating it. We certainly don't want, well, one big utility like a a postal system delivering our food. Mm -hmm. But perhaps there's one where you don't have individual people driving individual sandwiches to houses. Right. So, again, really making use of existing tried and true supply chains. Um, okay, so let's let's um, switch gears and talk about um, the ingredients that you say. What's what is required basically for a you know an efficient um, process of getting food from our you know from crop or from you know it's a, ri- a point of origin to our plate. Um, the first thing you talk about is reliability. How is this a right. prereq- prerequisite in the process? Hey, I want to ask you a question now. I know you're supposed to ask me questions. Yeah. But have we made logistics sexy yet? I think, I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but I think so. I mean, what do I, I am joined in the studio by my intern who's fabulous. So I'm going to see if, uh, Devaney, what do you think? Yeah. The big nod. I'm getting a, I'm getting a big nod. Oh, so I think we're on the right track. No way, man. Okay. We're going to, we're <laughs> going to talk to you about these four ingredients. Now, hopefully he won't change his, he or she won't change their mind. Yeah. But. Um, so these are four things that I just discovered. As I went around the world and talked to people who were moving food around, I was trying to find what makes this all work. What are the things you really have to have going for you? Um, large scale, small scale. I mean, I would imagine that a food hub would have to have these things or have these things already in place. One is reliability. In other words, you really have to have a system that can deliver food reliably. In order to plan everything out, you need to know that it's like, for example, an item is going to be produced on a reliable schedule, not unpredictable schedule. The minute those things happen, things start getting really complicated. Mm-hmm. And you have to know that a certain time, it's truck probably a certain size, and that um, oranges, you say open a bag of oranges, all 12 of them are going to taste like an orange. And look like an orange. So there's a lot of and look like an orange. Yeah. And so, so you really need to have some sort of have some sort of consistency because take something for them. Someone's gonna want that value to represent the consistency. And everyone in the supply chain in order to orchestrate all of Oop, you know what? You're cutting you you really cut that, out you, sorry, you really cut out with that. You said in order to orchestrate all the handoffs. Yeah. Is, complex supply chain you need to have reliable people showing up okay with you with know, with uniform time. with uniform product essentially yeah right exactly um and i mean there's no way you can make uh cost estimates um 
You can't have all your resources ready. The other thing besides reliability is adaptability, which is, seems like something that's a different side of the coin. Yeah. But what they're really is that um, weather changes, uh, conflict happens, um, people decide they want to drink collagen every morning. Uh, people <laughs> decide they like kale and then they don't like kale. So the supply chain has to adapt to all of these things that are fairly unpredictable. It needs to flex. It needs to be able to you, you know, build a new system. If someone puts a trade tariff down, it has to adapt to that. So it's, um, it is um, sort of like you know, a big rubber band that has to pull and push and adapt yeah. fairly quickly. Um, um, trust is another one. Right. Sorry, you're missing me. Oh no, no, no. That was that was good. Um, I was going to say we should. I want to come take a super quick commercial break. Just need to sneak one in yeah, here, yeah. Um, and then. But when we get back, sure. I want to. Um, I want to talk a little bit. We have a few more examples um, about like exactly what that looks like when the reliability and adaptability of certain aspects along the chain kind of get interrupted because I think the like sure. really thinking through like a case study of what that what you know what happens um, is was is so fascinating so um, stay tuned cool. we're going to word from our sponsors we'll be right back okay great This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. And we're back. Where today um, I am joined on the line by Robin Metcalf, author of Food Routes, Growing Bananas in Iceland, and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating. Okay, so I said before break, we, I want to kind of go in now like a, an example of how, Robin, when the adaptive reliability or adaptability of a system um, gets interrupted, or of a, sorry, of a supply chain gets interrupted. So can you give us kind of like a case right. study? Yeah, I can think of actually a couple um, very different ones, but they should give you a pretty good idea. Yeah. One would be that in, for all of you in New York there, the Hurricane Sandy when it happened. Yeah. Um, and you had a lot of uh, you know food establishments in parts of the city that were without electricity and experiencing flooding, and and so in order to adapt to this, you had. Um, and remember, we're talking about perishables now. So that means everybody's refrigerators are out. Yep. And in, and in some cases, gas for heating. 
So of, of what you saw happen, and I found this through one uh, particular pizza establishment across from Madison Square Garden, Pizza Prima. What they did is they called on relationships, and um, meaning people that they knew in areas that weren't without electricity, and they stockpiled and stored things like cheese and the perishables that were responsible for making the pizza. Pieces. So. So it's adaptable really through, in fact, this is one of the other key ingredients for the supply chain, through trust, mm-hmm. um, meaning that there are a lot of really trusted relationships within the food supply chain that sort of defy what you might think would be rational. In other words, you deal with people you trust, not necessarily is that person down the street, but you build these long-term relationships over time and they can really help um, when when you run into trouble. So in another case is one where um, Colonel Burke, um, who I um, worked with on this book, who was feeding the troops in Iraq as they were being withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had all kinds of strange, shall we say, challenges extreme challenges in feeding troops. Not only were the number of people, you know, mouths he was feeding every day changed because they were withdrawing and so people were leaving all the time, but he had to work around things like safe water, um, not having things stolen, not having truck drivers blown up. So um, he developed a supply chain that was very successful that had to adapt every minute to overcome these obstacles in ways that were unique to that situation. So whether it's under conflict or whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's Hurricane Katrina, um, or even what we're seeing now with the warming of the climate, you're seeing ways in which the supply chain is adapting to that. Yeah. So I mean, those are just a couple of cases. Yeah. I mean, Brexit, you can think of a bunch of them that are sort of have, happening right now where they're having to figure out how to still move food under very new and and very changeable conditions. Right. You know, I mean, in speaking of the tariffs, like what happens to the food that the producers, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but like, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sure certain farms in Mexico were, I mean, I know that they were planning, they were, their crops like a year ago or how many months ago based on like expected demand. And if, you know, the price changes drastically all of the sudden what happens to the crop that is like about to be harvested you know or, or was just harvested right when the tariffs go into effect like does that get wasted right. um well another case would be for example a couple of years ago it was really really cold i mean right now you're going to talk about um the floods in the midwest yeah but a couple of years ago it was really really cold and so there was a need to use the um, trains to move more heating oil across the country. And that tied up the locomotives from making uh, seed corn to the areas that needed to plant seeds for the corn crop. Right. So they couldn't, you know, plant at exactly the right time. So I think not only at the farming level are there a lot of changes, but the entire movement of food, the train system, the storage systems, the warehousing systems, everything has, you know, has to flex around that. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's fascinating to think that, um, like, the the need for these trains to deliver oil can affect, um, like, the when, you know, the harvest was, 
was planted. It was just like, you know, really following that down along the line is is crazy to think. Um, So one of the things also that was a big statistic that just jumped out at me is it was I was very surprised at is you say that in the last five years, the number of SKUs in the grocery business has increased by 50 percent. That like blew my mind. And that's continuing. That's crazy. It's crazy to me. I mean, I, I well, mean, Mac, well, okay. So let's let's take it even further. I mean, we're that's which is the number of products that we want. What about the whole movement of? I mean, think about the personalization of food. The personalization. I mean, one of the reasons everything has gotten so um, complicated in terms of the numbers of SKUs, you know, the actual objects that are being, you know, number of items being sold in the store, uh, for to suit everybody's taste, whether it's gluten-free, non-gluten-free, GMO, non-GMO, all of various combinations of things. But, it, you know, we're approaching a time not too far in the future where digital health will become a reality. And you'll begin to see for the very first time food will become medicine. And so that your personal diet may be the only one that exists because of your, you know, your genome, you know, your your activity level, where you live, and all of those various things, your, you know, family history might dictate that you have the optimum diet will be something. Um, oh, you know, I, you just totally, that I, I lost all of that. Sorry. Uh, what, did, what did you say? You said, I'm sorry about that. You said um, the, what you're offered can only be, will only be an optimized diet for you personally? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is personalized health. You know, when health becomes digital, and for the first time, food will become medicine. So your genome and everything about you will determine what food you eat. And it may be that you'll have your own personal diet. So, you know, it could be really granular at some point. Well, so let's... There's a lot of products out there now in the grocery store. Wait till, wait till food becomes medicine, personally. Um, I don't how I don't really understand that. How can that? What does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't understand. I mean, I did, I did leap there. So um, let's go back through that again. Yeah. So it's so you, what you're seeing now is you're seeing healthcare go through a transformation from basically analog health systems, meaning. You know, you're measuring everything and writing it down on paper. Mm-hmm. To people getting their genomes matched, to getting your basically your health, your personal health will exist in a digital form. Okay. Right. And so you you could just take this as a pretend case. You could have that information, let's just say, on a thumb drive, mm-hmm. which you could take to a food manufacturer, and they could deliver to you a personal diet that belongs just to you, that's mapped to your own personal needs and desire for optimum health. Right. So we were just talking about all the numbers of products in a grocery store. Yeah. But we could get to the point where we have one-off diets based on a diet designed just for you. And what that means is completely unclear at this moment. You know, what that means in terms of the healthcare industry. What does it mean in terms of food producers? What does it mean in terms of us? Yeah, it just it highlights the complexity or it I think that one of the things that hits me immediately is just is that's a great example of how food impacts everything. I mean, you know, like the tagline right. of the show, like it really does intersect with 
every aspect of our life, I think, in some way. Um, I wonder... Well, and more, more so, as the wall comes between um, healthcare um, establishment and the food industry. Yeah. Um, operating in two places. And, right. And um, those silos will disappear. I wonder if pe- I wonder if pizza will be a part of my um, personalized health plan. I think it should stay in there, but that's just me. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I imagine you could override a few features if you wanted to. <laughs> I think there'll be a lot of overrides. Maybe a lot of like red flashing lights, you know, um, around my like wine consumption. I mean, think about it. With food, we have the ability to optimize our diets, right? I mean, yeah. we've known for a long time, roughly, you know, eat less, be more active, yeah. don't eat all the bad, you know, lots of the bad stuff. We know how to optimize our diet, but we're human, yeah. and food is so emotionally and so tied to identity. We override it all the time. Yeah, definitely. So this will be very interesting as we go down the optimization road and we get more and more tech able to optimize. Where will it? You know, where will we reach the tipping point where you can optimize all you want? Humans just aren't going to go there. Well, w- let's talk about tech. So, um, how you know how do you personally define food tech? Because I, you know, this I think this is a very um, people take a lot of liberties with this phrase um, in like describing kind of the work that they do. So, you know, in your opinion, and, and like looking back kind of historically, does food tech? Um, what's the line basically between like quote like like really kind of technological advancements like um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this is like one, but maybe precision planting, let's say, or um, satellite imaging of, of like crop fields compared to kind of basic innovations that we've like basic product in- developments that we've seen happen throughout the industrialized food system. Well, first of all, let's think um, what is what's technology in the first place? There's knowledge, right? Yeah. Or broad broadly defined on how to do something better, let's say, yeah. a process. It just so happens that over time we've developed different tools. And this may, it's enabled us to make change faster, make improvements faster, cheaper, you know, like the, like the amount of processing on a chip, for example. That was a big um, moment, making things faster. And now we're just finding a couple of uh, changes. We're finding big data, for example, um, network connectivity. These are sort of um, moments in the development of that is creating opportunities for doing things faster and cheaper and integrating, with, especially with connectivity, integrating things that, no, that previously could not be integrated. Like what? For example, integrated entire supply chain has not been possible before. Well, what, what does that so, look like? Well, what's an example of how a supply chain has been integrated? Um, the idea of using blockchain to where you have a digital ledger and you'd be able to, you know, follow it and the handoff moment by moment by moment. Yeah. To a well, blockchain. I just actually want to pause right there because I, I had a separate question about blockchain and for those of us who are listening who are like less technologically in the know can you just remind us like what's blockchain and how does it work <laughs> just before we get just oh, before yeah. we get into the implications let's get, a, let's get a grip here i'm a historian <laughs> <laughs> all right good point good point <laughs> i mean 
I make it a point not to know exactly because. But you're a futurist, uh, Robin. Who, you're also a futurist. I'm a futurist. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, as I understand this, okay, that you you know basically you know these these are blocks of data that really um, exist in a network, a, a chain, right? And and it basically has to. Um, there are checks and balances between each handoff that have to be accurate and occur, so so that anything can continue to move through the blockchain. I mean, anyone that knows technology is basically laughing right now. The, the tears are coming out of their eyes. Oh, I, whatever. Explanation. Oh, no, 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 no. Basically, <laughs> there's integrity in this because you can't break it. If, if something doesn't match up between each handoff, mm-hmm. the whole... It, the whole linkage between all of these events in a blockchain um, signal a breakage. So it's very it's it's supposed to be very secure, which mm-hmm. is essential in food transparency and trust and food safety. And it enables the actual handoff, the, what they call the change of custody, custody transfer of of food as it moves through the manufactured uh, processes. So that you should be able to know where everything is at every minute and the ownership shift. So there's a financial piece of this as well as it moves through the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the, people are working very hard at this happening in the food system right now. I mean, Walmart, IBM, these people in, in a big scale way are working to make this happen. But it's an enormous challenge because, you know, not everyone wants to share their information. I mean, there's all this talk out there about open systems, and it sounds great, except if you have some intellectual property mm-hmm. or you've developed something a certain way, you're not that keen to share it with the world. Right. So where, you know, whereas in principle it sounds great, let's all get out there and show everybody what we're doing, it's going to be a... Um, Maybe a little long, take a little longer than expected to get everybody who's right now pretty much working with clipboards and writing pieces of paper and sticking them on the wall uh, to get to the point of sharing everything in a common format throughout something like a, like a blockchain. They all have to agree on a standard. Internationally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I mean, the I, world's so good at that. Right, we're so good at getting along and consensus building. Um, I, you know, I wonder. I guess it just depends, maybe, on like what the priority is, right? So, if the priority really becomes yeah. transparency, then the market will have to respond to that. Um, and to your point, you know, you you talk a lot about consumers' ability to shape the future of our food system. And right. and like what our options are. So I think that's a good segue. You outlined two kind of potential food futures. Um, can you just give us an overview of what those what are what our two options are? <laughs> well, one option is this all happens faster than we imagine, which there are cases of that possibly being the future because uh, the the speed of transformation is quick right now. And um, it might be that we actually will be able to um, buy online. Every, you know, humans will be disappearing, shall we say. Mm. That's probably one future. Where the humans are disappearing, we're really okay in having robots do everything and service in restaurants, make our food, design our food digitally, and, and deliver it. It, the second future is more. So let's think of that as a revolutionary future. That's one that's, that's faster, more digital, less human. 
And the second future is one that's more evolutionary. In other words, we discover that we need a human being serving us. We discover that uh, we can't really automate everything in our food system. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, one sort of filter is to think a little bit about if anybody has listened or, or watched um, Black Mirror. Um, I think it's a good exercise to think about when something comes up and you know, a change in our food system to run it out there a little bit further and say, what would happen if, um, and, and see how we feel about that. If, what would happen if humans disappeared? Right. Um, like we did, we, the only way we got coffee was by using the coffee kiosk. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, try to imagine that future. Right. And like play that, play that through. Which, you know, I think that we maybe have like a collective, I mean, I personally find some, you know, just like kind of inundated and overwhelmed with the everyday, the present, that it's sometimes hard to think through like the all future, all potential repercussions of, you know, of an action, but, um, you know, or a big shift like that. But, but food is, I mean, there's more so than any other industry you can say, and you talk about like the humanness of food and how it is so personal and emotional. Right. So is there one future that you think is more likely to happen or that you would prefer to see happen? Well, I think, you know, this sort of comes to the the, um, work I'm doing now, which I call Humans in Our Food. Ah. Um, Obviously a working title. But, but, um, you know, I think what happened when when I finished this book the question I had was, you know, what what would happen? You know, where are the humans in this story? And and since we are so connected to our food, and it, you know, it is what makes us human in many cases, how much technology can we really tolerate? I think one thing we're missing is that we have, you know, the people who work in our industrial, shall we say, our manufactured food system, mm-hmm. um, we don't know, we don't see them, we don't know them. You know, there's, and there's millions of them, both oh, yeah. nationally and internationally. And they are basically in the process business. And that is the first industry, the process-related activities that are going to be automated and are currently being automated, mm-hmm. right? The pressure for, for minimum wage is going up. Um, the, the workforce, you know, it's, it's hard to find people who work in that area right now in the, in the process-driven area. So we're about to see a a sea change in terms of the workforce. And I know there are some people who say, well, you know, we can move them into being coders. You know, we're going to, you know, they'll they'll just move on. And the people who I interview in that business, you know, they're not necessarily going to do that. They work with their hands. That that gives them that sense of satisfaction. Right. And um, I think there's something about working with your hands also that defines us as humans. So I don't think enough thought is being given in the design of our new technology um, as applied to food to where humans should fit into that equation. In other words, knowing that this has such a huge impact on our humanity, both in the workforce and in our relationship to ourselves and food, is there a way to work with designers of these new systems, processes, and products to think about that now. Yeah, like you know, in, in, like bringing you know, to build in, that into that 
that equation, like yeah. bringing in like a cultural anthropologist, um, right? To kind of or, or a similar or or a historian, a food historian, <laughs> certainly to help food things through. Imagine that. Yeah, what but the, also I think you know bring some of the people from the process businesses into oh, the design, you know, thinking circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. to these people. My, in my experience, when I interview them, it's like no one's ever talked to them about their job yeah. or who they are as human beings yeah. or what brings them satisfaction. I mean, this is one of the most unheard of from, unheard from, or um, unknown areas, you know, groups of people are the people who bring us food that we never see. Mm-hmm. They work at night, they work in big buildings. No one has any idea about who they are. We know our farmer. We get to know our chef. But how about getting to know all the people who work in, the, you know, the belly of the beast, basically? Yeah, that's um, hopefully hopefully going to be the next frontier. Um, okay, so we have to wrap it up in just in just a minute. But before I want to ask you a question that's also, um, you know, personal to me, and I think a lot of our our listeners, um, and that is, you know, as someone who, in thinking about the future, um, you know, I am someone who's personally very connected and a big proponent of the slow food movement, um, which is kind of of the past. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, in recognizing that we're on the cusp or experience at the very beginning of a big change in our, in our food system and our food supply chain, um, what advice as someone who has like a in-depth knowledge of like where we've been from in our food movement, what advice would you have to an organization and like, you know, movement like slow food to, you know, keep up with the times and, and modernize as our food system and supply chain is updating? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a bit long winded, but <laughs> no, it's a, it's a tough one. I really wish there was an easy answer. Answer. Yeah. I think there are many organizations who have been thriving for the last decades who are sort of asking them the same questions. So like, what what next? What is that? Right. How can they bring their basic principles to play? I think we have a much, much more literate, food literate um, uh, world out there. Mm-hmm. So the, there's less teaching and more like they're looking for... Um, more important questions, more important problems to solve. So I think, you know, upgrading the level of the conversation towards smartness instead of, you know, just people don't know anything about their food. I think that's different now. Mm-hmm. Slow food was played a, a wonderful role in, I mean, I think a really important role in, in bringing stories out about, um, you know, people who in, in indigenous food cultures. Um, we worked with them on the farm for, for um Breeds, you know, our animals uh-huh. were in the what do you call it, the ark? Yeah, the ark of taste. Yeah, yeah. So they've done a lot in that area, bringing attention to things with that were very under the radar for a long time. So much is on the radar now. What do they do? Right. Um, you know, I think uh, I've been seeing uh, slow food um, referred to in terms of bringing back. Um, there's a, a company called uh, Cook's Ventures, I think, which is bringing back slow-growing um, animals mm-hmm. into their business for regenerative agriculture. So, there, you know, there may be some way to look at this movement of regenerative agriculture and bring some of the principles that the slow food holds dear uh, to them in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what has you know, one challenge for organizations like Slow Food is it is they do get into sort of like political and ethical um, value 
statements, which is not a bad thing, but it does make people have to choose, you know, you know, do I believe this way politically and ethically rather than what's the right situation at this time. And I think we have so many different choices to make here. As I said, there's a lot of um, options that require um, delicate negotiations to see which way you want to come out on them. You know, do you want your meat made in a lab? That's not very transparent. Right. (laughs) But maybe it's better because you don't have to raise so many animals and deplete the environment in that way. Yeah. So giving people more room to be able to come to or discover and decide where they want to go. Um, It's a really, I mean, I completely understand how challenging uh, remaking, rethinking a company's mission statement in the the environment that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, But, you know, Slow Food's been, uh, brought those stories um, under the radar. Um, There must, there's got to be a way to take those same threads and and bring them into a conversation that is smarter, brighter, and and reaches across some of these these, um, sort of binary discussions that that have existed for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is an amazing, um, amazing place to stop. Um, but I'm like, but just kidding. One, one more thing. Um, when, uh, where can listeners go to get a copy of your current book? And then also when is your new book due out? And when, (laughs) when can I get it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the current book is, is in uh, bookstores. I'm sure you can get them in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Barnes and Noble and those carry them, and but also it's available on, on Amazon as well. So you can get an Audible, Kindle, and all that good stuff. And can you get it through your Although publisher? I have no idea. How? Yeah. Uh, the publishers, yeah, through uh, the MIT right? Um Okay, awesome. And then, do you have a website where we can, or um, a, you know, Twitter feed where uh, our listeners can go to to learn more about yep, what you're I'm doing? I'm at at Food Miracle um, is my own Twitter handle and. Food and City is my project at the University of Texas at Austin, and that would be www.foodandcity.org. All right. And my new book is to to be determined. It's both a documentary film and a book about all those invisible people, um, introducing them one by one. Well, I so definitely we can understand them. I definitely want to um, want to uh, have you back on when that comes out. Great. All right. Thank well, you so much. For yeah. The, for thank the, um, Time to talk about this book. Yes, Robin. Thank fun. you so much. It's just so, so, such an interesting topic, and the book is re- just so well done. I can't recommend it um, highly enough. So, um, all right. The, thank you. So, we're going to leave thank it you. there. Um, and uh, before we go, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Um, for their generous support. I also want to thank our engineer, Jeet Paul, of course, um, and um, the one and only Devani Latino. Thank you for being so fabulous. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of uh, the show are available on Heritage's website or as a podcast, wherever you may um, find them. Um, if you haven't done so already, uh, please subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think, what you want to learn more about. I'm Jenna Liu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.com. 
heritageunderscore.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.